0: Section 3 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4 by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 28. Francis I and Charles V, Part 3 thus began to be implanted in that which should be the most respected and the most independent amongst the functions of government namely the administration of justice not only the practice but the fundamental maxim of absolute government i am going to the court and i will speak the truth after which the king will have to be obeyed was said in the middle of the seventeenth century by the premier president Mould to cardinal de retz chancellor du if we are not mistaken was, in the sixteenth century, the first chief of the French magistracy, to make use of language despotic not only in fact, but also in principle. President Mould was the head of a body invested, so far as the king was concerned, with the right of remonstrance and resistance, when once that right was exercised, he might without servility give himself up to resignation. Chancellor Duprat was the delegate, the organ, the representative of the king, it was in the name of the king himself that he affirmed the absolute power of the kingship, and the absolute duty of submission. Francis I could not have committed the negotiation with Leo X in respect of Charles VII's pragmatic sanction to a man with more inclination, and better adapted for the work to be accomplished. The pragmatic sanction had three principal objects. 1. To uphold the liberties and the influence of the faithful in the government of the Church, by sanctioning their right to elect ministers of the Christian faith, especially parish priests and bishops. Two. To guarantee the liberties and rights of the Church herself in her relations with her head, the Pope, by proclaiming the necessity for the regular intervention of councils and their superiority in regard to the Pope. Three. To prevent or reform abuses in the relations of the papacy with the state and Church of France in the matter of ecclesiastical tribute, especially as to the receipt by the Pope, under the name of annates, of the first year's revenue of the different ecclesiastical offices and benefices. In the fifteenth century it was the general opinion in France, in state and in church, that there was in these dispositions nothing more than the primitive and traditional liberties and rights of the Christian church. There was no thought of imposing upon the papacy any new regimen, but only of defending the old and legitimate regimen, recognized and upheld by Saint-Louis in the thirteenth century, as well as by Charles the seventh and the fifteenth the popes nevertheless had all of them protested since the days of charles the seventh against the pragmatic sanction as an attack upon their rights and had demanded its abolition in fourteen sixty one louis the eleventh as has already been shown had yielded for a moment to the demands of pope pius the second whose countenance he desired to gain and had abrogated the pragmatic But, not having obtained what he wanted thereby, and having met with strong opposition in the Parliament of Paris to his concession, he had let it drop without formally retracting it, and instead of engaging in a conflict with Parliament upon the point, he thought it no bad plan for the magistracy to uphold in principle and enforce in fact the regulations of the pragmatic sanction. This important edict, then, was still vigorous in 1515, when Francis I, after his victory at Malignano and his reconciliation with the pope, left Chancellor du at Bologna to pursue the negotiation reopened on that subject. The compensation, of which Leo X, on redemanding the abolition of the pragmatic sanction, had given a peep to Francis I, could not fail to have charms for a prince so little scrupulous, and for his still less scrupulous Chancellor. The pope proposed that the pragmatic, once for all abolished, should be replaced by a concordat between the two sovereigns, and that this concordat, whilst putting a stop to the election of the clergy by the faithful, should transfer to the king the right of nomination to bishoprics and other great ecclesiastical offices and benefices, reserving to the pope the right of presentation of prelates nominated by the king. This, considering the condition of society and government in the sixteenth century, in the absence of political and religious liberty, was to take away from the church her own existence, and divide her between two masters, without giving her, as regarded either of them, any guarantee of independence than the mere chance of their dissensions and quarrels. Egotism, even in kings, has often narrow and short-sighted views. It was calculated that there were in France at this period ten archbishoprics, eighty-three bishoprics, and five hundred and twenty-seven abbeys. Francis I and his Chancellor saw in the proposed concordat nothing but the great increment of influence it secured to them, by making all the dignitaries of the Church suppliants at first, and then clients of the kingship. After some difficulties as to points of detail, the concordat was concluded and signed on the 18th of August, 1516. Five months afterwards, on the 5th of February, 1517, the King repaired in person to Parliament, to which he had summoned many prelates and doctors of the university the Chancellor explained the points of the Concordat, and recapitulated all the facts which, according to him, had made it necessary. The King ordered its registration, for the good of his kingdom and for quittance of the promise he had given the Pope. Parliament, on the one side, and the prelates and doctors of the university on the other, deliberated upon this demand. Their first answer was that, as the matter concerned the interest of the whole Gallican Church, they could not themselves decide about it, and that the church, assembled in national council, alone had the right of pronouncing judgment. "'Oho! so you cannot,' said the king. "'I will soon let you see that you can, or I will send you all to Rome to give the Pope your reasons.' To the question of conscience the Parliament found thenceforth added the question of dignity. The magistrates raised difficulties in point of form, and asked for time to discuss the matter fundamentally, and deputies went to carry their request to the king.' He admitted the propriety of delay, but with this comment, I know that there are in my Parliament good sort of men, wise men, but I also know that there are turbulent and rash fools. I have my eye upon them, and I am informed of the language they dare to hold about my conduct. I am king, as my predecessors were, and I mean to be obeyed as they were. You are constantly vaporing to me about Louis the Twelfth and his love of justice. Know ye that justice is as dear to me as it was to him, but that king, just as he was, often drove out from the kingdom rebels, though they were members of Parliament. Do not force me to imitate him in his severity." Parliament entered upon a fundamental examination of the question. Their deliberations lasted from the 13th to the 24th of July, 1517, and the conclusion they came to was that Parliament could not and ought not to register the Concordate, that if the king persisted in his intention of making it a law of the realm, he must employ the same means as Charles the Seventh had employed for establishing the pragmatic sanction, and that, therefore, he must summon a general council. On the 14th of January, 1518, two councillors arrived at Amboise, bringing to the king the representations of the Parliament. When their arrival was announced to the king, Before I receive them, said he, I will drag them about at my heels as long as they have made me wait. He received them, however, and handed their representations over to the Chancellor, bidding him reply to them. Duprat made a learned and specious reply, but one which left intact the question of right, and at bottom merely defended the concordat on the ground of the King's good pleasure and requirements of policy. On the last day of February, 1518, the King gave audience to the deputies and handed them the Chancellor's reply. They asked to examine it. "'You shall not examine it,' said the King." This would degenerate into an endless process. A hundred of your heads in parliament have been seven months and more painfully getting up these representations, which my chancellor has blown to the winds in a few days. There is but one king in France. I have done all I could to restore peace to my kingdom, and I will not allow nullification here of that which I brought about with so much difficulty in Italy. My parliament would set up for a Venetian senate. Let it confine its meddling to the cause of justice which is worse administered than it has been for a hundred years. I ought, perhaps, to drag it about at my heels, like the grand council, and watch more closely over its conduct. The two deputies made an attempt to prolong their stay at Amboise, but, if before six to-morrow morning, said the king, they be not gone, I will send some archers to take them and cast them into a dungeon for six months, and woe to whoever dares to speak to me for them." On returning to Paris the deputies were beginning to give their fellows an account of how harsh a reception they met with, when Louis de la Tremoille, the most respected amongst the chiefs of the army, entered the hall. He came by order of the king to affirm to the Parliament that to dismiss the Concordat was to renew the war, and that it must obey on the instant or profess open rebellion. Parliament upheld its decision of July twenty-fourth, 1517 against the Concordat, at the same time begging La Tramoy to write to the king to persuade him, if he insisted upon registration, to send some person of note or to commission La Tramoy himself to be present at the act, and to see endorsed upon the concordat, read, published, and registered at the king's most express command several times repeated, in presence of, specially deputed by him for that purpose. Tramoy hesitated to write, and exhibited the letters whereby the king urged him to execute the strict orders laid upon him. "'What are those orders, then?' asked the premier president. "'That is the king's secret,' answered La Tramoy. "'I may not reveal it. All that I can tell you is that I should never have peace of mind if you forced me to carry them out.' The Parliament, in its excitement, begged La Tramoy to withdraw, and sent for him back almost immediately. "'Choose,' said the premier president to him, "'between Saturday or Monday next to be present at the registration.' La Tramoy chose Monday, wishing to allow himself time for an answer even yet from the King. But no new instructions came to him, and on the 22nd of March, 1518, Parliament proceeded to registration of the Concordat, with the forms and reservations which they had announced, and which were evidence of compulsion. The other Parliaments of France followed with more or less zeal, according to their own particular dispositions, the example shown by that of Paris." The university was heartily disposed to push resistance farther than had been done by Parliament. Its rector caused to be placarded on the 27th of March, 1518, in the streets of Paris, an order forbidding all printers and booksellers to print the concordat on pain of losing their connection with the university. The king commanded informations to be filed against the authors and placarders of the order, and on the 27th of April sent to the Parliament an edict, which forbade the university to meddle in any matter of public police, or to hold any assembly touching such matters, under pain as to the whole body of having its privileges revoked, and as to individuals of banishment and confiscation. The king's party demanded of Parliament registration of this edict. The Parliament confined itself to writing to the king, agreeing that the university had no right to meddle in affairs of government, but adding that there were strong reasons, of which it would give an account whenever the king should please to order, why it, the Parliament, should refuse registration of the edict. It does not appear that the king ever asked for such account, or that his wrath against the university was more obstinately manifested. The concordat was registered, and Francis I, after having achieved an official victory over the magistrates, had small stomach for pursuing extreme measures against the men of letters." we have seen that in the course of the fifteenth century there were made in france two able and patriotic attempts the pragmatic sanction in fourteen fifty eight under charles the seventh and the states general of fourteen eighty four under charles the eighth we do not care to discuss here all the dispositions of those acts some of them were indeed questionable but they both of them one in respect of the church and the other of the state aimed at causing France to make a great stride towards a national free and legalized regimen to which feudal society had never known how or been willing to adjust itself. These two attempts failed. It would be unjust to lay the blame on the contemporary governments. Charles the seventh was in earnest about the pragmatic sanction which he submitted to the deliberations and votes of a national council, and Louis the eleventh, after having for a while given it up to the pope, retraced his steps and left it in force as to the states general of fourteen eighty four neither the regent anne de beaujeu nor charles the eighth offered the slightest hindrance to their deliberations and their votes and if louis the twelfth did not convoke the states afresh he constantly strove in the government of his kingdom to render them homage and give them satisfaction we may feel convinced that considering the social and intellectual condition of france at this time these two patriotic attempts were premature. But a good policy, being premature, is not on that account alone condemned to failure. What it wants is time to get itself comprehended, appreciated, and practiced gradually and consistently. If the successors of Louis the Twelfth had acted in the same spirit, and with the same view as their predecessor, France would probably have made progress in this salutary path. But exactly the contrary took place. Instead of continuing a more and more free legal regimen, Francis I and his chancellor, du Prat loudly proclaimed and practiced the maxims of absolute power. In the church, the pragmatic sanction was abolished, and in the state, Francis I, during a reign of thirty-two years, did not once convoke the state's general, and labored only to set up the sovereign right of his own sole will. The church was despoiled of her electoral autonomy, and the magistracy, treated with haughty and silly impertinence, was vanquished and humiliated in the exercise of its right of remonstrance. The Concordat of 1516 was not the only, but it was the gravest pact of alliance concluded between the papacy and the French kingship, for the promotion mutually of absolute power. Whilst this question formed the subject of disputes in France between the great public authorities, there was springing up, outside of France, between the great European powers another not more grave in regard to a distant future but more threatening in regard to the present peace of nations. King Ferdinand the Catholic had died on the 23rd of January, 1516, and his grandson and successor, Archduke Charles, anxious to go and take possession of the throne of Spain, had hastily concluded with Francis I, on the 13th of August, 1516, at Noyon, a treaty intended to settle differences between the two crowns as to the kingdoms of Naples and Navarre. The French and Spanish plenipotentiaries, Sieur de Boissy and de Chèvre, were still holding meetings at Montpellier, trying to come to an understanding about the execution of this treaty, when the death of Emperor Maximilian at Wells, in Austria, on the 12th of January, 1519, occurred to add the vacant throne of a great power to the two second-rate thrones already in dispute between two powerful princes. Three claimants, Charles of Austria, who was the new king of Spain, Francis I and Henry VIII, King of England, aspired to this splendid heritage. In 1517 Maximilian himself, in one of his fits of temper and impecuniosity, had offered to abdicate and give up the imperial dignity to Henry VIII, for a good round sum. But the King of England's envoy, Dr. Cuthbert Tunstall, a staunch and clear-sighted servant, who had been sent to Germany to deal with this singular proposal, opened his master's eyes to its hollowness and falsehood, and Henry the Eighth held himself aloof. Francis I remained the only rival of Charles of Austria. Maximilian labored eagerly to pave the way for his grandson's success, and at his death, the struggle between the two claimants had already become so keen that Francis I, on hearing the news, exclaimed, I will spend three millions to be elected emperor, and I swear that, three years after the election, I will be either at Constantinople or dead." The Turks, who had been since 1453 settled at Constantinople, were the terror of Christian Europe, and Germany especially had need of a puissant and valiant defender against them. Francis I calculated that the Christians of Germany and Hungary would see in him, the King of France and the victor of Melignano, their most imposing and most effectual champion. Having a superficial mind and being full of vain confidence, Francis I was mistaken about the forces and chances on his side, as well as about the real and natural interests of France, and also his own. There was no call for him to compromise himself in this electoral struggle of kings, and in a distant war against triumphant Islamry. He miscalculated the strong position and personal valor of the rival with whom he would have to measure swords. Charles of Austria was but nineteen, and Francis I was twenty three, when they entered, as antagonists, into the arena of European politics." Charles had as yet gained no battle and won no renown while Francis I was already a victorious king and a famous knight but the young archduke's able governor william de croix lord of chevre had early trained him says m. megnier to the understanding and management of his various interests from the time that he was 15 charles presided every day at his council there he himself read out the contents of dispatches which were delivered to him the moment they arrived were it even in the dead of night. His counsel had become his school, and business served him for books. Being naturally endowed with superior parts, a penetrating intellect and rare firmness of character, he schooled himself to look fortune in the face without being intoxicated by her smiles or troubled at her frowns, to be astonished by nothing that happened, and to make up his mind in any danger. He had even now the will of an emperor, and an overawing manner." His dignity and loftiness of soul are such, says a contemporary writer, that he seems to hold the universe under his feet. Charles's position in Germany was as strong as the man himself. He was a German, a Duke of Austria, of the imperial line, as natural a successor of his grandfather maximilian at Frankfurt as of his grandfather Ferdinand at Madrid. Such was the adversary with such advantages of nationality and of person against whom Francis I, without any political necessity, and for the sole purpose of indulging an ambitious vision and his own kingly self-esteem was about to engage in a struggle which was to entail a heavy burden on his whole life and bring him not in triumph to constantinople but in captivity to madrid End of section three.